From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and since we're just past President's Day, and since I'm reading a wonderful book, Russell Shorto's Revolution Song, really does make the Revolutionary War exciting. And also because one of you asked for this last week, and you were right, I've been thinking about doing this for a long time, and I never quite get to it. The Founding Fathers. What did the Founding Fathers sound like? How did they talk? Specifically, did they have British accents? Is the idea that because British English was recent and America was in closer contact with Britain and more Brits were coming over and there hadn't been time for American English to form, did they sound like Masterpiece Theater? Or to make a less dated reference, did the Founding Fathers sound like Downton Abbey and the Crown? I think we know how the Founding Fathers didn't sound. I mean, the way that we're hearing them lately and in itself, this is wonderful, is in a certain musical that has had a certain popularity. We've even discussed it on this show before. That's Hamilton. And so these days, I'll bet quite a few people are imagining the Founding Fathers sounding like this. Son, don't call me son. This war is hard enough without infighting. Lee called you out. We called us You bluff. solve nothing. You aggravate our allies to the south. You're absolutely right. John should have shot him in the mouth. That would have shut him up, son. I'm not your son. Watch your tone. I am not a maiden in need of defending. Charles Lee, Lee, Thomas Conway, these men take your name. We know they did not sound like that. You know, Hamilton is God, but you know, how did they really sound? Well, it's an interesting question. There's only so much we can know, but let's break it down. Break it down. You know, I actually had occasion to meet MC Hammer once. It was in British Columbia. Stop. Hammer time. In any case, how did the founding fathers talk? It's hard to know because, of course, There were no recordings. There really weren't. It wasn't that there were some. There were none. And then they died. And even if you exhumed these people, you can't tell how they talked from their bones. Now, of course, there were people walking around describing how people talked in early America. But, you know, nobody then said anything interesting. There is no such thing then as linguistics in the sense that we know it. If you were a linguist, you were somebody who happened to speak and or read a whole bunch of languages. And those languages were usually languages of Europe and not too far from there. Linguistic science only started coalescing in the early 1800s. And in terms of what we now know as sociolinguistic analysis, that doesn't really exist until the 1960s. So how did people talk in, say, the 1700s? You get some comments. Somebody will say something like, the people in this region, I don't know what that accent is, but the people in this region, well, they have a broad A. Well, what the hell does that mean? I mean, what's a broad A? That could mean so many things. Which A sound? Are we talking about ah, A, ah, what is it? And how is it broad? It's wide. Have you ever spoken widely? Broad in which way? That's like saying that somebody had a broad butt. It doesn't really help that they are described as having this broad A. Not to mention that If somebody's just walking around, you know, brilliant though they may be, their impressions of language 
are often not dependable, as I've often said, and I do not disinclude myself from that. Remember, I've told you, I used to think that arrive was a word that people really only used in writing or when they were trying to sound tuxedo-ish. Then I started noticing that people say arrive with their mouths full in their pajamas. It's a much more common word than I thought. But back in 1760, if I, you know, had a wig on my head and was wearing stockings, I would have scratched on some piece of paper with my blood or with a feather and ink. I would have said, well, arrive is a word used only by the upper classes. And in writing, uh, I would have written that and I would have been dead wrong. Or so coming at the beginning of sentences. Many of you are irritated by people saying things like, so it turns out that the bus is going to be late. And there's a sense that that's new, folks. It's not new. It goes way, way back. But it's easy to think that it's new because you hear things. And if it's the first time you notice it, then you think it's new. So you get an awful lot of that in what evidence we have of how somebody spoke in America in, say, 1750. You just you can't depend on it. What we do know is that it was a mix of the dialects from Britain. And it wasn't that any dialect from Britain came over and was preserved. And so we can't say that in New England, they spoke dialect A and in the South, dialect B was preserved. You want it to be that way. Gosh, don't we all want tidiness? But that's not how it worked. People came from many different parts of that island. Then they came here and they spread all around and they mixed all together. And the result was that you had children hearing a hodgepodge of English dialects and what they came up with often would have split the difference between all of them. And so what happened was that lots of dialects from across the pond came here mixed in ways that they never had on the island itself and then gradually settled into the dialects that we perceive today, none of which are anything like Britain. Nobody in Great Britain talks anything like the way somebody talks in, say, Mississippi. New things happened here. It's only in the early 1800s that a consciousness starts to set in explicitly. Noah Webster led a lot of this, but there's evidence that it was also on the ground that there was a such thing as speaking American only then. But if we're talking about the founding fathers, we're talking about people who usually would have learned to talk in different parts of America. That's, you know, a wrinkle that also makes it harder in, say, the first half of the 1700s. And so, How did white Americans of relatively broad horizons who learned to speak in the first half of the 1700s talk? That's our question. Now, what we can know is that, say, Benjamin Franklin did not sound like this. This is, for the record, Robert Preston. A lot of you probably know him best for his Harold Hill in The Music Man. As you might imagine, he did other musicals, and you know they usually weren't as successful as Music Man. This is Robert Preston playing Ben Franklin in Paris. Listen to a warm little speech that he gives near the end of that musical. I have heard about a cask of good Madeira wine into which a small fly fell. Which cask was corked? was shipped 3,000 miles across the sea, where, after 20 years of lying in the dark, was brought up, was opened, and a first glass filled from it, at which filling it chanced that a small drop of wine spilled upon the tabletop. And there, in that small drop of wine, lay the selfsame fly, who, seeming dead, did as the sun shone on him, and dried his wings, arise miraculously, shook himself, 
and flew up bustling into the blue day as alive again as ever he had been. Isn't that pleasant? The show didn't run very long, and there was a reason. One of those cases where the composers were so flummoxed that they had to bring in Jerry Herman of Hello Dolly fame to write a couple of songs quickly. And, you know, there's a reason that you don't listen to Ben Franklin in Paris. But Ben Franklin wouldn't have sounded like that. So is it that these people sounded British? What do we mean by that? We probably mean two things. We mean arlessness, and so you're parking a car instead of parking a car. That's what we Americans like about the British. We associate that arlessness with intelligence. Think about how <laughs> arbitrary that is. So we say park. They say park. And for some reason, that sounds like it's God parking, and they're doing the same thing we're doing. But so park the car. And then there's the ah-ah business. Try to play a Brit in a play as an American, and this is one of the nastiest things because a lot of it is quite arbitrary. Not a path, but a path. But then you're studying math, not moth. And then you've got not last, but lost, aghast, aghast. You've got to know, but some of them switch, some of them don't. And so is it that kind of thing? Is it going to be about lasting in the past or is it going to be about lasting in the past? Arbitrary too. Just think, it was in the past, and that makes the past sound so special. It could have been somebody being strangled to death. It was in the past, whereas for us, it was in the past. And so then you just think of somebody strangling, and you think about how terrible life really is. But I Went to a Marvelous Party is a grand old song. This is Noel Coward. This is Patricia Routledge, who many of us know as Hyacinth Bouquet in Keeping Up Appearances. She actually had a whole career on the stage as well. This is her doing I Went to a Marvelous Party in 1970s. And so listen to Aghast, Past, Contrast, Lost, and then she went to a marvelous party. And it didn't start, it started. And there's somebody named not Carr, but Car, and he's at not a bar, but a bar. Listen to Patricia. People's behavior away from Bill Gravia would make you aghast. So much variety watching society scampering past. If you have any mind at all, Gibbon's divine decline and fall seems pretty flimsy, no more than a whimsy by way of contrast. On Saturday last, <laughs> I went to a marvelous party. We didn't start dinner till ten. And young Bobby Carr did a stunt at the bar with a lot of extraordinary men. So that's what we mean by British. Is that what George Washington and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson sounded like? Well, here is one thing that we do know. The Arliss thing which we imagine going back in Britain, God knows how long, you know, maybe back into Middle English, actually didn't. You know, the reason why originally these R's were written, and that's because they were pronounced just as we Americans are used to. Arlessness in Britain only really settled in as the 1700s were turning into the 1800s. And so, for example, Americans who had crossed the pond over to here in the 1750s who went back in the 1780s, then came back here and remarked that, you know, the R's were disappearing at the ends of syllables in Britain, that this new way of speaking had come in and that it sounded funny. Imagine how odd that would sound if you had never heard anybody do it before. But that only really settles in in the early 1800s in Britain, which means 
that the British that was carried over to America would have been awful. So there's that. And then the other thing, the business of the past rather than the past. That sounds so good to us. Let's face it, we want Patrick Henry to have sounded that way. But no, because that settled in in the 1800s as well. So British English being brought here in the 1600s and 1700s was awful. And you talked about the past. You parked in the past. You didn't park in the past. That means that oddly enough, Brits, when they were bringing their language here, sounded more American than they do now. What we think of as the plummy British accent is really only about 200 years old. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. If you imagine a British person talking the way they do now in 1760, then that's like doing a movie where you're showing somebody writing the Declaration of Independence and you have them writing on some crinkly yellow piece of paper as if that's what it looked like then. No, it wasn't yellow and crinkly then. It was a whole different thing. It was white and smooth. It only got that way over time. Brits would have sounded more like us, not the other way around. You do want more Franklin, at least I do. My favorite Ben Franklin is Howard De Silva in 1776. I'm going to use the film because on the Broadway cast album, it's Rex Everhart because De Silva was in the role, but he had a heart attack and so he couldn't be at the recording session. I want De Silva. This is But Mr. Adams. And listen to Howard De Silva's warm voice. Ben Franklin wouldn't have sounded like this either. But to me, this is what Ben Franklin sounds like. Mr. Adams, I say you should write it. To your legal mind and brilliance we defer. Is that so? Well, if I'm the one to do it, they'll run their quill pens through it. I'm obnoxious and disliked, you know that, sir. Yes, I know. But I say you should write it. Franklin, yes, you. Hell no. Yes, you, Dr. Franklin. You. But. You. But. You. But. Mr. Adams. But, Mr. Adams. The things I write are only light extemporanea. I won't put politics on paper, it's a mania. So I refuse to use the pen in Pennsylvania. So, Ben Franklin, yeah, but what about the presidents themselves? I don't think any of us give a damn how James Monroe talked, but let's start from the beginning. What about Washington, Adams, and Jefferson? Well, you know, with Washington, we just can't know because all you get is impressions. There's one person who says that his voice was low and rumbly. Well, low, okay. Rumbly, what's what's a rumbly voice? There are a couple of people who say that his voice was indistinct. Well, what, where was it? You know, indistinct in what way? Did he not pronounce his consonants? And, you know, we're all thinking something about his, his false teeth, but apparently he did not have a magnificent vocal instrument. But, you know, rumbly, who knows about his vowels? For the record, actually, There are people who think that Washington, talk about the broad A and the broad butt, Washington may have had a broad butt. You can see it in one of the paintings in particular, Gore Vidal actually mentioned that a lot in depicting him as having womanly hips. The truth is, it's probably a matter of just the fashion of that painting. There are other descriptions of him that 
make it seem less likely that his derriere was <laughs> wide. And, you know, that digression is the best that we can do about George Washington. John Adams, we actually know a little bit more. Many of us, if we don't still have Paul Giamatti in our ears from the miniseries based on the recent McCullough book, might imagine John Adams standing around singing because of 1776 as well. And so, for example, you're in Philadelphia. It is really hot and the founding fathers are singing songs. Here is the wonderful sit down, John. By God, I have had this Congress For ten years, King George and his Parliament have gulled, cullied, and diddled these colonies. And still this Congress refuses to grant any of my proposals on independence, even so much as the courtesy of open debate. Good God, what in hell are they waiting for? Sit down, John! Sit down, John! For God's sake, John! Sit down! He may have sounded rather like that. But there's a peculiarity about Adams and his speech and his wife, Abigail's speech, that we can know from the letters that they wrote copiously, obsessively to one another. So, for example, July 3rd, 1776, we're talking about the John Adams who otherwise was walking around singing, you know, with an orchestra apparently somewhere in the basement. Here is something that he writes to Abigail. It's the queerest thing about their letters because it happens again and again. I was informed a day or two before the receipt of your letter that you was gone to Plymouth by Mrs. Polly Palmer, who was a... No, I didn't flub. It really is. I'll do it again. I was informed a day or two before the receipt of your letter that you was gone to Plymouth by Mrs. Polly Palmer. And you think, well, is that a slip or something like what? Given that he's a very formal writer otherwise, it goes on, who is obliging enough in your absence to inform me of the particulars of the expedition to the lower harbour against the men of war. Okay. And you think, well, his hand slipped because he was hot and there was an orchestra. 17 days later, he writes, and this is a little more intimate. He says, if you was too busy to write, I hope that some kind hand would have been found to let me know something about you. If you was too busy to write. And so you're thinking it almost sounds like Fresh Prince or or something. But this is John Adams. If you was, and Abigail does it too. And it actually made a kind of sense. Think about this. I was, you was. He, she, was. We were. You all were. They were. That's better. It makes sense. But Robert Loth, who had a lot to do with what we consider proper English to be today, didn't like you was. He thought it should be you were because in you's original usage, which was in the plural, thou was in the singular, it had always been you were. Sounded better to him, therefore, to say you were. So he made the verb more irregular than it was. He dropped dead. And here we are today. So that is something that we know about Adams. Now, Jefferson, certainly a whole generation is going to think that Jefferson sounded like David Diggs in Hamilton. And here he is jumping onto the scene with what I miss. Francis following us to revolution. There is no more status quo. But the sun comes up and the world still spins. I have Lafayette draft a declaration. Then I said I gotta go. I gotta be in Monticello. Now the work at home begins. So what did I miss? But no, no. Thomas Jefferson in reality did not sound like a young 21st century man of color. Nor... Did he sound like this? 
he had a reedy voice. He had a very poor speaking voice. This was mentioned often. It wasn't just indistinct. He was difficult to hear. His voice was high. He was not an orator at all. So before David Diggs, many of us would have thought, for example, that he sounded like Ken Howard, who was sort of standard white dude. Many of you will remember him not only as Jefferson in the Broadway show and also in the movie of 1776, but that White Shadow series that was better than it usually got credit for back in the late 70s, I believe it was. You know, I actually, um, I met Ken Howard once. It was just by accident. He was at a bar. Gosh, it's frustrating. Even into the 1800s, it can be hard to know things. And so, for example, New York City speech. We think we know what it sounds like, and we might imagine that it was like that back in the early 1800s. But when people are walking around at the time and making usually passing comments on speech, it's clear that what was going on was nothing like what we think of as New Yorkese today. William Cullen Bryant. He's one of those people where you know the name, but you can never quite remember what he did. Poet something. Schools are named after him. 1820, he's running around in New York and he says, well, people around here say sitch instead of such. And instead of saying gave, they say gov. Imagine if you heard anybody talking about govving sitch today, you'd have them committed. But that was normal speech. And then you get all this contradiction. 1853, somebody is walking around New York's filthy streets and saying, wow, the English here is the purest English I've ever heard in America. Okay. But then in 1856, somebody else says, even people, you know, relatively elevated station here in New York, say violent instead of violent and afeard instead of afraid. So what happened to pure three years ago? It's obviously just individuals with their superficial impressions. That's the best that they could do. 1856, we have afeard. 13 years later, somebody writes a novel where they talk about a prosperous lad having a strong New York accent. Well, what happened to the pure part? And so this means that if you are Martin Scorsese and you are making a movie about the gangs of New York set in 1863 and you've got a dedicated actor like Daniel Day-Lewis, he's going to put on that mustache and do some serious acting. Remember that weird accent he came up with for his character? And, you know, nobody quite knew where it came from. Really, he didn't either. Here it was. You know how I stayed alive this long? All these years. Fear. The spectacle of fearsome acts. Somebody steals from me, I cut off his hands. He offends me, I cut out his tongue. He rises against me. I cut off his head, stick it on a pike. You know what? Whatever the hell that was, frankly, he is allowed. Because... We have no idea what people sounded like. That's 1863, somewhere in between a feared and the guy who has a strong New York accent while somebody else is walking around saying, goodness gracious, all of this is so pure. How is language pure? What do people mean by that? New York City. Alexander Hamilton lived here. Now, here's something that you might think, and this is one of those things where you want it to be this way. He was born on the Caribbean island of Nevis, grew up, spent his childhood on St. Croix. Well, that's the Caribbean. And so there's a neat idea that we might have that Alexander Hamilton, here we go. But no, no, he he didn't. He wouldn't have had 
a Caribbean accent. And the reasons are partly mundane. St. Croix was ethnically a very complex island in terms of colonial crossroads at the time when he was there. Most whites on St. Croix were English speakers. The majority of whites were English speakers. And so he would have grown up with Danish around him. But in terms of the life that he led and the people that he knew, he would have heard English spoken by whites who had their ear on the homeland rather than the people who had created the fascinating new Caribbean Creole and Creole-influenced dialect. And then there was also a cultural aspect of things. When Hamilton got to the United States, despite how the musical wonderfully has him saying things like immigrants, we get it done. The truth is that for somebody like Alexander Hamilton, all indication is that in the culture he was dealing with, where oratory was a highly valued form of social capital. To be someone like him, he would have directed himself to learn how to express himself, including in his speaking style and including in his accent, in a way that would be acceptable and even esteemed by as many people as possible in elevated places. He would have pushed harder at this than probably most of us can imagine today, because thank God we have a much more, although certainly linguistic elitism remains a serious problem, we have a much more democratic speaking culture than an Alexander Hamilton would ever have known. He would have come and he would have almost certainly tried to shed any Caribbean accent that he would have had. And there's apparently no evidence of anybody saying that he had one. He got knocked for being you know, foreign and a bastard, et cetera, here and there. But nobody made fun of the way he talked. And so many people despised him so deeply that you can almost be sure that somebody would have. He would have molded his speaking style to that of the sort of high wonderbred white that he had situated himself in. Listen to Booker T. Washington, He's speaking in 1904. And just listen to his voice. Booker T. Washington was born a slave. He would have grown up on his mommy's knee speaking an early black English, less like standard English than black English is today. Slave. Listen to him talking. Mr. President and gentlemen of the board of directors and citizens, one-third of the population of the South is of a Negro race. No enterprise seeking the material, civil, or moral welfare of this section can disregard this element of our population and reach the highest success. Can you imagine how hard he must have worked to learn to express himself in that way? Frankly, it's almost unjust that he basically had to learn another language to the point that today, if somebody didn't tell you that that person speaking was black, you might not know it. That's the old style oratory culture. Alexander Hamilton was in that. And so it's unlikely that he had any kind of calypso lilt to the way that he talked. You know, I I have to. I just have to. A little bit more of I went to a marvelous party. You have to hear how it ends. <laughs> marvelous! We played the most wonderful game. Maureen disappeared and came back in a beard and we all had to guess at her name. We talked about growing old gracefully. And Elsie, who was 74, said, A, it's a question of being sincere. And B, if you're supple, there's nothing to fear. 
Then she swung upside down from a glass chandelier. I couldn't have liked it <laughs> I love that more than almost anything in the world. Anyway, this Noah Muva thing, thank you, folks. The response has been a deluge. I am still learning. I am just fascinated by how much I've heard, which I could not have known because I haven't been in sandboxes. I haven't been growing up with white girls. I have not been in most parts of the country. It would be very easy for me to say people started saying Noah about 10 minutes ago. And I scratched that down on a piece of paper in my own blood. And then 200 years later, somebody says it must have started in 2009. No, I've learned a lot from you all. But certain pathways that we want to avoid going down. Many of you have very intelligently noted that there are analogs to this, uh, their precedents. And so, for example, of course, this. Get up, get on up. Get up, get on up. Get up, get on up. And of course, there is a direct relationship between that style of singing and the fundamentalist preacher style, which is actually race neutral, where you've got this sort of uh as a stylization. Of course, the proper demonstration is from The Simpsons with the way Reverend Lovejoy sometimes speaks. Harry Shearer likes to do this. Baboons to the left of me, baboons to the right. The speeding locomotive tore through a sea of inhuman fangs. A pair of the great apes rose up at me, but biff, bam, I sent them flying like two hairy footballs. A third came screaming at me. (laughs) And that's when I got mad. But if you want to be lil sociolinguists, so to speak, then you have to know that we have to think about pathway. And so, yes... Those are similar to somebody like Sarah Hyland saying move up. But was there a pathway of influence from, say, James Brown or a fundamentalist preacher in a tent and the way Sarah Hyland's talk? And that seems relatively unlikely. We're talking about very different cultures. Why would a little quote unquote white girl start talking the way James Brown Sang. And so we have to remember that when we're talking about linguistic traits, we're talking about this big grab bag, and they can happen in more than one place spontaneously, like dumplings. You know, every culture apparently has something that's like a dumpling. You know, you might call it dim sum, you might call it pierogi, you might call it ravioli, but every, everybody's got one. And it's not that it started in one place and spread, it's just, it's delicious. And so it's something that people might just do spontaneously. For example, you know how there are people where they're going to make a statement? And when they make a statement, it has the intonation of a question that's called up talk. And it's perfectly okay for reasons that we have talked about and we'll probably mention again. But that's first heard in Australia in the 50s. And so it's easy to think, well, it only started here. It's because people aren't certain about anything anymore. What happened to that rock ribbed certainty that all human beings in America had until about 1989? Start in Australia and, you know. The extent that I know Australians, they seem pretty sure of themselves. And yet the uptalk started among teenagers there. There are recordings. Another analog of the uh, that many of you have brought up, and whenever you do, it makes me think of things that I like, and that is that you can do this with French song. 
the obvious, the obvious demonstration would be New Faces of 1952. That's a Broadway review. Most Broadway reviews don't hold up well, but this is one where for some reason the cast and the songs are so good that I have known people who don't even like Broadway who love the cast album of New Faces of 1952. Well, not people. I've known one person like that. And, you know, I didn't really know him. Never mind. It's a very good show. It's a very good score. And here's Eartha Kitt. And Eartha Kitt is singing Bal Putti Bal. This actually got around. And she's singing in French and listen to Sympathique. So somebody is nice. He's Sympathique. That's what you learn in class. Sympathique. You're talking about politics. Politique. Okay. But she says Politique. And then Phlegmatic. Phlegmatique. So it's very Noah Mouva. Listen to her. Je me souviens du patron sympathique qui discutait politique avec l'agent phlegmatique. Pour nous deux, you know, I actually happened once. No, I didn't. I always wished that I had been able to meet her. Anyway, it's not going to be from French, though, either. Like, once again, you've got some girl swinging in a tire hanging from a tree in Grand Rapids, Michigan, sometime in the 80s. And she's saying, no. Well, is she getting that from some French cabaret singer sucking on a galoise in Paris in 1952? Like, Charles Aznavour and that girl have no contact. So, once again, these things can happen in many places. However, I'm getting a sense of the story because I heard from so many of you. It was magnificent. It certainly seems to have started with children and it's gender neutral in kids. Both of my girls are actually already doing it. And I'm getting the sense that kids have been doing it since the 80s, at least. And on the other questions on straight men, gay men, the evolving meaning and such, I'm going to leave you in suspense. And that music back there, of course, is on the Alfred Hitchcock Show's theme. This is the closing theme. Very well arranged if you listen to it and if you weren't watching it in syndication so they didn't have announcing over it. This this tune was called The Dance of the Marionettes. Very nice tune. In any case, you can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lex... You know what? Let's not... I don't want to go out on this tune. I want to go out on something happier. You know what it should be? Let's have the Amen theme song. Amen was uh, a delightfully bad and wonderful sitcom from the late 80s and early 90s. And I always loved it. It took place in Philadelphia. It had Sherman Hemsley in it. For some reason, they had a Swedish maid. I have always wanted to get this into the show somehow. And you know, this is as good a time as any. So how about the Amen theme song? That is much better. Here we go. So you can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. Mike Volo has always edited this show. And by the way, the response to the Noah Muva thing has been so large that I simply could not respond to your emails and tweets individually. But please know that I read them all. And if I may, every time one of you writes me that you like the show, in my mind, I thank you quite explicitly. Many thanks to all of you, especially over the past couple of weeks, for shining on me, John McWhorter. (laughs) 
On Hit Parade, Chris Melanthi takes you on a fascinating journey through pop chart history, whether it's the week the Beatles swept the entire top five on the Billboard charts or the unlikely reign of MC Hammer's You Can't Touch This, Donna Summer's underappreciated career or the timely meeting of Run DMC and Aerosmith. Hit Parade explores the people and the politics behind the songs you hear on the radio. Check out Hit Parade everywhere you download podcasts.